Thanks for coming. I know it's last day of term. Um, apparently, endless war is a very male topic. Um, I hope I can make it interesting, although um, I must admit I, I didn't ask permission from Audrey, but um, I've decided to present on future work um, some rough ideas I have and would like to pursue. And, and selfishly, I, I can present it uh, without any clear you know, confidence in the ideas and get your advice about whether and how to pursue it. So I'll just start um, in my 30 or 40 minute um, part of this before hearing from you um, with a news conference um, and, and, uh, and congressional testimony, parliamentary testimony that's taken place in the past 24 hours. Um, a, a someone named Joseph Votel, General Votel, um, appeared before the Congress in the United States. He's the commander of CENTCOM, a so-called Central Command, uh, which is the part of the military uh, that has jurisdiction operationally over the Middle East. And he uh, gave some actually fairly widely reported remarks to um, the Congress in my country. He said a few things. First, he said, uh, sadly, the a security situation in Afghanistan is deteriorating uh, and uh, another surge uh, will be necessary uh, in his judgment in coming years and he plans to present uh, a proposal to now President Donald Trump about more ground troops returning uh, to Afghanistan uh, but he also apologized the first uh, uh, a well-known, well-publicized military act under President Trump's watch uh, was in Yemen, uh, just after he took power. And sadly, it led to the death of a U.S. serviceman, a Navy SEAL. That man's father has demanded an investigation. And it's, it's been somewhat well um, you know, publicized that he's done so in the United States. And General Votel apologized. He said, I take responsibility, even though this was a successful operation, uh, which led to a lot of, of intelligence gathering for the death of this soldier. If there were mistakes, it's, uh, it's, it ultimately goes all the way to the top, or at least to the top of Central Command. But he also said he must apologize for civilian death. Uh, which occurred in this raid, and as you know, does occasionally occur in U.S. operations, whether uh, it involves boots on the ground uh, it, it, during such things as the past and possibly future Afghani surge, or light footprint operations, like the special operations uh, that occurred in Yemen just now, or through drone strikes. Uh, uh, and. Uh, he, he expressed remorse that, sadly, um, some civilians appear to have died unnecessarily in this Yemeni campaign. Now, what I want to do in the, my time is um, talk about a new form of warfare that, that appears to have crystallized and I think is reflected um, in, in General Votel's testimony. And it speaks to the way we think about the possible regulability of war today. Um, and more generally, as a historian, I want to reflect on what I see as a vast change that's taken place in the way 
um, people, especially in the global north, think about the regulation of war. Um, essentially, I'm going to contend that for a long time, the abolition or prevention of war, war itself, or the stigmatization of war, if sadly it took place, had pride of place as a reform agenda in international affairs. Uh, no longer. Uh, today we seem to live in an age of low level, most often, but endless war. Uh, this same General Votel, who has jurisdiction over the Mideast, is just the latest commander in what uh, an excellent author, Andrew Basevich, has called America's War for the Greater Middle East, uh, which has lasted over 40 years now. Even if you consider the war on terror to be a discrete campaign, it's now lasted for longer than any war in U.S. history. And of course, it has participation from the government of this country and others. And geographically, it seems to know few or no boundaries. Uh, a special ops operates uh, year on year routinely in 150 countries. That's three quarters of them. Uh, this war on terror is much closer to being a literal global war than either of the two wars we call world wars. Uh, and no end is in sight. Uh, and yet, this war is perhaps, you'll forgive me, the most humane war ever fought in human history. Uh, not to say that things don't go wrong. Sometimes apologies have to issue when they do. Possibly punishment could occur when rules are grievously broken. And yet, even though war is unbounded, chronologically and geographically, it seems to be confined in the way it's fought. And so this is my hypothesis, that for some reason we should think through, we've dropped efforts to regulate war itself in the name of regulating its conduct. Uh, and this is a transition that it might be obvious why it's happened, but I just want to think about it with you. Um, to wonder if it's a good thing uh, that we've ended up with global endless but humane war with li likely no change in the offing uh, anytime soon. So one place to start, it's a, very, a strange place, but as a historian, you'll indulge me, is in the immediate aftermath of World War I when there was a great debate about whether to try Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. And the question was, should we take this unprecedented step? Should the Allies take this unprecedented step? And if so, to try him for what crime? Now, he wasn't tried in the end. But what I want to draw your attention to is that he was going to be charged for a crime against humanity. Uh, this was actually proposed uh, by uh, some, but uh, opposed by others, including Arthur Balfour, who's famous today for other reasons, who worried that we shouldn't legalize this kind of thing. But he initially lost the argument, and others pursued it. And it almost came to pass. 
Uh, and yet, uh, the charge was going to be something like a crime against humanity. But in retrospect, this is very strange because what those who advocated this trial had in mind was not war crimes, uh, even though Germany had committed them in spades. We now know that uh, when Germany initiated the war and wheeled through Belgium, uh, it committed horrend quite horrendous atrocities that it, it said were propaganda, but turned out to have, have actually occurred. And yet, that's not what this trial was going to be about. It wasn't going to be about war crimes, but the crime of war. And quite interestingly, in the public rhetoric of this period in 1918, uh, actually this phrase, crime against humanity, or crimes against humanity, was used to refer to war. Uh, not atrocity that happens regrettably sometimes when war breaks out, but aggression, the crime of war itself. You see some examples of this from some of the leading statesmen of the time, including uh, David Lloyd George from this country. Uh, the war itself was a hideous, abominable crime, etc., etc. It wasn't the civilian suffering that was the wrong only. It was the soldier's death, too. Uh, uh, and the war itself, which really needed to be prosecuted. Now, it didn't happen, but what interests me is that crimes against humanity had not assumed their current meaning to refer to civilian atrocity in war. Instead, it referred to the war itself. Now, I'm not the first person to discover that Kaiser Wilhelm was you know, thought to be subject to trial. Uh, but the way this moment is usually narrated points in a different direction. It's said that it almost happened that we subjected a head of state to accountability protocols uh, and began ending impunity, uh, even though, sadly, it never came to pass. Wilhelm took refuge uh, and couldn't be gotten at. And then there were the Nuremberg trials, when after this abortive first attempt at ending impunity, Nazi leaders were subjected to accountability. Finally, impunity was ended. Uh, and then uh, there's, there's us. Uh, now, there's something deeply misleading about this narrative. I hope you can already see. For one thing, this is a Google engram. No one in history except us has said that they wanted to end impunity. Um, but more important is the question of impunity for what? As I've already shown you, perhaps the more interesting transformation is that even as we've decided and committed to holding some people accountable, including some leaders, the crime itself has changed. Now, if there's a campaign to end impunity, it's broken with 
the events around Kaiser Wilhelm as much as realize the promise of that one. Uh, it's a campaign to end impunity for atrocities, not for war itself. So how did that happen? Was it a good thing? Well, that's what I want to explore, and just with some kind of major signposts along the way that would have to be more thoroughly researched and you know, the connections between and amongst them filled out. Um, what if we took the fact that the crime against humanity that our ancestor cared about was war and told a very different story about our attempt to regulate it, including criminalizing over time? Well, I think if we go back, we find that in the 19th century, war prevention was, was the cause which led to the founding of international law, including international laws of profession. Not what you could call the humanization of war, keeping it and making it more sanitary and humane, but ending war itself. Now, of course, these two agendas, because they are 19th century agendas, prevention and humanization, were unprecedented in history, both minority campaigns. Most people, most people in the public were militarists. They believed in war intensification and expansion. And so we're talking about a dilemma amongst the minority of reformers. And yet insofar as there were uh, people concerned about the expansion and intensification of war already in the 19th century, they appear to have cared most about war prevention. There was a massive peace movement unprecedented in the 20th century, except in the 1920s and in the late 1960s, and non-existent now. And even those who said they cared, at least in the short term, about humanizing war, like the founders of the Red Cross, who began sponsoring treaties to regulate the conduct of hostilities, told friendly audiences that their ulterior goal was to end war. And so war humanization was only justified as an indirect strategy of war prevention. So you see this statement from um, a, a very important man named Gustave Monnier, no relation of mine, um, who was the real founder of the International Committee for the Red Cross. The, the, the mistaken one named Henri Dunant, you may have heard of, won the Nobel Prize for peace, but really just had a bright idea that this man, Gustave Monnier, put into practice by leading the ICRC for so many years. And what he tells us is that this is just one move. Humanization will prepare the road for prevention, pending the time when it's possible. He, are, he speaks about the civilizing or humanizing of war, which could only, he says, lead to its abolition. That hasn't happened. Uh, actually, this, if this was a bet that he was making, it was a grievously bad bet. And indeed, there's a risk that humanizing war could postpone its abolition. And in fact, there were people who worried as much at the time. One of the most interesting was the novelist slash pacifist Leo Tolstoy. 
I'm going to commit a, a bad literary critical fallacy now because this is a passage from War and Peace in the mouth of a character, but it was actually his view too, so I'll just say it was his view. He worried that if we sanitize and humanize our most violent conduct, we'll think of ourselves in a self-congratulatory way as better people, but we'll actually, in a way, ingrain and entrench violence. So, he says, if we didn't take prisoners, that would be the real step to take to end cruelty. Um, and then he attacks the women who are not with us today except Audrey, uh, who uh, he said at this time at least complained and about the, the terrible cruelty to animals while continuing to eat them. It was better to humanize the process of food production, uh, but of, for Tolstoy that's just a way of you know, entrenching the practice. He was a vegetarian. Uh, he con concludes, if we weren't magnanimous in war, we would only do it uh, when, when necessary or, or abolish it altogether. Well, this, this was a struggle amongst these reformers. Would humanization of war be part of a larger abolition agenda or would it actually entrench the very practice of war that uh, that that all all of these reformers hope to see um, hope to see go away. Now, after World War One, in spite of the the um, failure to get at the Kaiser, there was a huge peace agenda, and not surprisingly, given how many had died, um, and uh, this agenda far outstripped the continuing struggle under the. The, the auspices of the Red Cross and, and, and others to make war more humane. Um, and that leads us to Nuremberg, which you may have heard have been taught uh, was a, a trial about the Holocaust. Not true. It was a trial about the aggressive war organized, designed, and perpetrated by the Nazis. Very secondarily about atrocity and really not, almost not at all about the Holocaust in particular, which barely came up in the 10 months of the trial. Now, we can think of bad reasons why uh, Justice Robert Jackson, lead American prosecutor, and others may have miss, missed the boat morally, may have ignored what now seems to us so central about this conflict that his generation had lived through. Um, and yet there was also a very interesting reason proffered at the time for prioritizing aggression rather than atrocity. Um, uh, it was worse to start a war given all of the disastrous conduct that's perfectly legal once it starts than merely to target the illegality that occurs during uh, this is a, a greater includes the lesser premise. And the claim of this probably leading U.S. law professor at the time, Herbert Wexler, taught at Columbia University, was that of course it's far more important. It was absolutely correct for the Nuremberg organizers to, having seen war break out, continue the prevention and stigmatization campaign for war itself rather than attend to the 
infractions that occurred in the course of the war. There was also, I think, a deeper set of ideas abroad at, at, at this moment in the 1940s that had to do with the causality involved in war. There's a causal idea in this little quotation I've given you, which is that war is the causal antecedent for war crimes. If you abolish war, you abolish war crimes, but the reverse is not true. And actually, far more generally, the whole post-war settlement was an attempt to find a recipe structurally before we even get to matters of war and peace so that the kinds of societies we have are not as likely to devolve into aggressive war, let alone atrocity at the very end of the causal chain. To stigmatize, prevent atrocity is to start with the last step in the causal chain not to intervene earlier. And so the, the richest way of thinking about this priority of, of aggressive wars in terms of this, this causal chain, and I think Wexler gives us an example of, 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 of the power of this view. Just in case you're not convinced by my assertions, this is just a simple word count of how often various words were said in the course of the 10 months of the main trial, the so-called uh, uh, Nuremberg trial. Technically, it's the International Military Tribunal. And you see aggression and its variants. War itself was at the absolute center. You'd be interested to know, this is my topic for in a bit, human rights were barely mentioned, and actually mainly by the Nazi attorneys, the defense attorneys, who said that this trial ran roughshod over their due process, the due process rights of their clients, which is actually probably true. Okay, um, so then, then we get the mystery. Why did this long-standing prioritization of preventing and stigmatizing war itself end? How did we end up with humane war that is endless uh, and, and, and without geographical boundaries? Well, again, these are engrams which allow us to measure the salience of various words, uh, names, and phrases over time. What, what this chart does is take the phrase aggressive war and, and gives us a percentage of the number of books year on year in which that um, phrase appeared relative to the number of books total. And now Google has gotten around to scanning every book ever published. So this is a very good meter of how prominent something is. Um, and, and you note this difference in these two charts. Aggressive war, that phrase spikes in the 40s, and it's been in decline ever since. War of aggression spikes in the 60s uh, and has been in decline ever since. So you're welcome to try to explain that interesting variation. The point I want to retain is that at some point after the 40s through 60s, the idea of aggression seems to experience a fatal blow. Uh, why? Well, maybe the Nuremberg, well, the abortive trial of Wilhelm and then the Nuremberg trials were, were one-offs or were, were exceptional events that couldn't determine the, the, our overall sense of what to regulate in war. Maybe it's the case that uh, these were such unpopular people, the Germans, and by the end of the war, 
they have no friends. Everyone agreed that that their their very political decision to declare war on the world uh, could be stigmatized, but that's not going to be common. Uh, and in fact, states generally want to have an interest in not investigating uh, and stigmatizing the right to go to war because they want to reserve that right into the indefinite future. And so what we have here are these unique events in which states were willing to actually charge another state, at, or its leaders at least, with illegal war. But in the ordinary course of things, we're not going to see that happening yet. You, know? you could also argue in a variant of this that most of us now are wanting to charge leaders while they're in power and active. Uh, the, the virtue of Nuremberg is that it had already toppled the Nazis and captured all of this documentation, which made it possible to prove whatever the constitutive elements of a, a charge of um, aggression are. We can talk about the, the details. But again, that's not going to be possible in many other cases. Um, especially if we want to begin, as we do now, charging people and stigmatizing people before they're out of power, Bashir and so forth and so on. The biggie, I think, um, the big possible explanation that most people would light on right away, and you probably did, you know, as soon as I started talking, is that aggression applies to interstate war, presumably. And yet we don't have much of that anymore aside from the endless war Americans with British supporter fighting. Uh, you know, mostly with the consent of other states. So we just have very little illegal border crossing anymore. Uh, interstate war is not exactly a thing of the past, but it's declined precipitously in incidents. What remains is the internal wars. And it's just not clear that we can as easily prevent or stigmatize those. And we certainly can't with the concept of aggression. So if we have a war prevention mentality, we've got this big black box of internal wars, which we haven't really even yet faced up to. How do you prevent a civil war? How do you prevent um, cross-border terrorism and counterterrorism, which are not interstate wars? Um, even if they're not strictly internal either. Now you might argue, even if you're, if you're very legalistic, that in the meantime, around, around the era of Nuremberg, we created a UN charter system and learned to control force in the international system. Uh, and that fact maybe even accounts for the fall of interstate war. And so uh, the fact that we don't talk about aggression anymore as a, as a legal priority and about war prevention more broadly as a legal priority reflects the fact that we solved the problem through the UN Charter. Finally, you might say people in the 19th century and the 1920 were, were too dreamy. Uh, and uh, we just have to embrace the eternal incidents of war. Uh, at least the residual war may not have. And so, of course, we're not talking about 
the problem of war itself anymore because we've just accepted it's the, the residual incidence of it. Now, I want to suggest that that's, those aren't good enough reasons and that we've had two other facts that need to be put on the table as possible um, reasons for this development. One is just briefly a, 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 a human rights revolution that took place after Nuremberg um, that has been principally about um, uh, atrocity abroad uh, and its prevention and or stigmatization. Uh, Nuremberg had stigmatized aggressive war because it was something that happened to northern citizens when their states fought. Uh, but then those states stopped fighting. Uh, and the human rights revolution encouraged them to look south, where new states did not succeed in governing their violence amongst themselves or internally. And human rights, in a sense, became a way of changing the subject to a new set of concerns, not the concerns of people involved in war in the global north, but people who are spectators of war and especially civilian atrocity abroad. But that then means that we've got to think very carefully about the decolonization process um, and the effect that may have had on this debate. The post-colonial states never dropped their interest in aggression and on the sanctity of international borders. They wanted to defend them after five centuries of colonialism. And they wanted to stigmatize those states, especially powerful states that illegally crossed borders. Um, but for Northerners, that wasn't a big concern, especially since these states were so subject to misrule. And so Northerners dropped any big concern with war itself, which sometimes they decided they needed to conduct, whether in their own security interests or for the sake of humanitarian protection. And so for this cultural and maybe, let's say, ge geopolitical set of reasons, atrocities surged as the new agenda, the fundamental and central agenda of war regulation. Now, I'll just show you with my engrams. I'm not placing a huge amount of you know, weight on these charts. They're just vivid. That in case you weren't aware, the concept of human rights barely enjoyed any um, lift in the 1940s, contrary to what you may have heard. Uh, there was a universal declaration of human rights, but there was nothing like the human rights politics and law that we have today um, to organize our thinking about war. Um, and there was no human rights movement that appeared in the 1940s. That's reserved for this incredible moment, my laser's working again, starting around 1975, creating the wave on which we, we live and serve. Um, so, it's not surprising that people at Nuremberg didn't mention human rights except the attorneys for the Nazis. Whereas we, it's the fundamental concept by which we organize our thinking about really world politics, but especially war in, in uh, 
in, in the global south or abroad generally. Meanwhile, the Holocaust is, is like a companion of human rights. Starting in the 60s and especially 70s, people began to learn and care about it to an extent they had not done in the 40s, sadly, when they'd been perpetrating it or ignoring it. Uh, that's why I didn't feature at Nuremberg. Justice Jackson and others didn't know enough, didn't care enough to make it more central. But after the 60s, good and bad books, films, et cetera, uh, people began to care intensely about the Holocaust. I think it was in the context of decolonization. Adolf Hitler didn't delegitimize sovereignty, which went worldwide after World War II. But decolonization did delegitimize sovereignty. And, and wealthy northerners began to think it has to have limits, given the misrule the global south has, has imposed after empire. And the Holocaust was remembered, in, let's say, in the course of um, the, the new culture in which uh, people uh, were no longer experiencing war on their own territories in the global north. Instead, they were spectators of post-colonial suffering, especially wartime suffering. Uh, and so this is like the cultural change that's taking place that might help us account for this change. And then we get the end of the Cold War when you get the real legal action. Um, international criminal law, the attempt to stigmatize illegally war after um, after it's taken place, uh, was put on hold uh, after Nuremberg. But after 1989, it was revived, and yet it was very different. People often say the promise of Nuremberg was redeemed after 1989, but as I hope I've convinced you, that's extremely misleading because it was radically transformed. Now it was atrocity law. Uh, first in the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and then in the one for, the, for Rwanda, and finally in today's International Criminal Court, uh, all of which are atrocity tribunals. Um, and so it's as if in reviving the promise of Nuremberg, Nuremberg priorities were not just reversed with atrocity getting cried in place, that's not radical enough a way of describing the change because aggression was dropped altogether, although the global south with some allies has struggled to put it back since in some amendments. Um, now, I'm not suggesting this is a bad thing. I'm against atrocity as much as the next person. And in fact, many neglected crimes uh, that were, were ignored in the first round of international criminal law were added, as I've already suggested. While crimes against humanity had been verbally in the Nuremberg Charter, they were taken very seriously now after 1989. Genocide, unmentioned, a couple mentions of the word genocide in Nuremberg uh, became utterly central and, and things like rape, terrible, um, added. And yet, you might worry about um, where we've ended up through this trajectory. Well, I've, I've sort of begun by indicating where I think we've, we've, we've ended up. It's due to a, a host of factors. Uh, but there's a worry that, that we might have inadvertently made a mistake uh, in, in reaching the current configuration. Because 
great powers like my state and, and this state uh, can fight clean wars. And since the wars of decolonization, they want to do so. Their military leaders want to do so. After 9-11, when certain civilians uh, decided to bring torture back uh, to, uh, to American counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, the military opposed this. Uh, one of the great stories uh, I, I, I like to repeat uh, from a, a New Yorker journalist who recounts how the, the commandant of West Point, which is our military academy in the United States, flew to Hollywood around 2004 and begged the producers of a television series called 24 to stop glamorizing torture. And I thought when I read this, this is an incredible reversal. For most of history, the civilians have had to control the military, and now it's the reverse. When it comes to atrocity, the military doesn't want to commit it. Uh, now, it may want to push the boundaries of various rules, but it doesn't want to suffer the ignominy uh, and unpopularity that it did in and through its brutality in the wars of decolonization, or in the case of my country, Vietnam. Um, Meanwhile, we have no peace movements. We have human rights movements instead. And it's not that human rights movements are for war, but they abet the sanitization of endless war. They're not aggression movements that are trying to prevent or stigmatize war itself. Instead, their goal is to make its conduct more humane. Now why? I don't think they operate with the same views as, as, as Gustave Moignet in the 19th century. I think human rights NGOs can't possibly believe anymore that making war more humane will ultimately end it. But I believe they think that there's no alternative but to accepting the endurance indefinitely of war and, it, and cleaning it up. That's the best available possibility when it comes to the regulation of war. Maybe they're right. But one could still regret, given the hopes of our ancestors, that they've left the stigmatization of war itself its initiation, its globalization, its continuation out of account. There aren't resources in human rights law or humanitarian law for that matter uh, to stigmatize these things. Uh, and so there's a big question, I think, at the end of this. Uh, do we need a, a different and better body of law than these bodies we've, we've privileged in war making. Now there's a big current attempt, if you're law students you may know about it, to actually inject human rights law into the law of war. We can talk about the, the significance of that, but I don't think it changes the picture because neither of these bodies of law are about the initiation or continuation or globalization of war. They're about how it's going to be fought. Now, I don't want to suggest 
that there are no norms to which we can appeal. Um, so this is the conclusion. The UN Charter is still active. There's lots of domestic law in my country and yours that ought to be governing the initiation, uh, globalization, and continuation of war. But it's gotten short shrift. Uh, we could ask uh, why it is that we've had a debate about torture and other infractions, but not so much about war, war itself. Now, that's especially true in my country. Uh, in this one, you've actually had a debate about at least the Iraq phase of the endless war of our time, the Chilcot report. Uh, and yet, as you may know, that report didn't take up the law. It took up whether it was a policy mistake, as it obviously was, uh, for the Iraq war to be initiated. Um, it's, it seems as if there's some law there that, that could address, if it were taken more seriously, um, war itself. And yet the, the sad fact is that it's more apt to be abused than, than taken seriously. So I won't get into the details unless you're law students in care, but um, you know, the UN Charter is being interpreted in very interesting ways by Americans um, to, to be compatible with this global endless war. Um, now in general, I, I should admit, most of the war has been consensual. Uh, one thing that happened after the Yemen raid in January was that Yemen tried to withdraw or threatened to withdraw its consent for American operations uh, over, over Yemeni territory. Uh, but not all has been consensual. <coughs> and endless war has gone along with a lot of, of abuse of, of statutory and constitutional and, and especially international law that's supposed to be there to, to be um, in the spirit of war prevention and not just war humanization. But by and large, I think we've accepted this result. We care about torture and related infractions without really having a debate about whether making war humane actually entrenches it. That's, uh, I think, if Tolstoy were alive today, what he would worry about. Uh, but of course it's not. So um, I'll stop there and, and uh, you know, see what you think about these matters.